The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you guys, to get to share with you, and to take a look at Psalm 129. So this summer, we have been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, or the Songs of Ascent, uh, which are the Psalms that were written for a pilgrim or pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. As the pilgrim would journey to the capital city where the temple of God was located, they would sing these songs. They were corporate songs, songs for a journey. My, my family and I have been doing quite a bit of journeying this summer. Uh, we've been traveling a lot, and uh, because we knew that we were going to be traveling so much, we felt like now was the perfect opportunity to pull the trigger on a free trial subscription of Apple Music. And so we would drive, and we would listen. And, and the kids, you know, they had their favorite songs, and we created some playlists, but Towards the end of each journey, as patience was wearing thin, fatigue was really setting in, we, we began playing this game. We had this routine for the final hour or so of our journey. Four of the five of us would take turns picking a song. Sometimes we would find ourselves singing some catchy tune that maybe is in a movie. Other times, perhaps we were singing a Broadway tune or or maybe one of those obligatory songs that you hear at every wedding dance. Maybe something instrumental. It was up to the person. When it was their turn to pick, they picked, and we listened. And this game made it possible for us to, to push through that last hour of the journey. Because, you know, songs have a way of bringing us together. They guide our affections. They direct our thoughts. They... They set our mind in a particular place. And given the power of song, you know, it might be a good idea for us, the church, to pay attention to the songs that God gives us to sing. Especially, especially when the contents of the song may not be exactly what we would expect or what we would anticipate God might ask us to sing. You know, last week when you guys were looking at Psalm 128, it, it probably fit sort of what you would anticipate, what you would expect from, from church, from a Christian church. You know, Ben preached on the psalm for those who want to be happy, right? those who desire to be blessed. If you walk in God's ways and you follow his directions, then, well, you can clap along because you'll feel like a room without a roof. You can clap along because you feel like happiness is the truth. And you can clap along because you know that happiness is for you. Psalm 128 declares the prosperity and peace that the pilgrim can experience as they journey to meet with God. It's a happy song. It's a song of gladness. It's exactly the sort of thing we would expect. And then you turn the page. You come to the next song of the journey, the song that we are going to look at today, Psalm 129. And it is not what we would expect. It's a song that begins with suffering. It's a song that, 
that starts with suffering and then it ends with an imprecatory prayer. What's an imprecatory prayer? Well, to, to imprecate is to invoke evil upon or curse one's enemies. Psalm 129 begins with suffering and it ends with cursing your enemies. Oh, that, that is not what many of us think about when we think the Lord has asked us to sing a song. Let us take a look at this psalm together. Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up. With which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word, the story of your grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song that you have put on our lips, that you have commanded us to sing on our journey. And Lord, as we wrestle with the lyrics Would you reveal to us your grace and your mercy, your kindness and your redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not the song that you would expect. This is a song about suffering. The head musician stands up and he cries out. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then he invites the congregation to join with him. Let Israel now say. And the congregation joins and they repeat. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. Is it a strange thing that God would tell his people to sing about their persecution and suffering. To reflect and remember the pain and the hurt. God wants his church. This is my first point. God wants his church to sing about suffering. Verse 3 says, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is an incredibly graphic and painful verse. As you consider the image of someone digging a sharp blade of their plow into the flesh of your back, dragging it through and creating a trench upon you so that they can plant their seed. This is not some sort of light, momentary suffering as One deals with the inconvenience of perhaps having a parking space further from the door than they'd like or having to wait a little bit longer for that package in the mail. 
No, this is describing the kind of suffering that sticks with you. The kind of suffering that leaves a scar. The kind of suffering that 400 years later still has an impact. These words, this song, God has written it for his church to sing. Because we can relate with suffering. Can you relate with this today? Greatly have they afflicted me. When this psalm refers to the affliction of my youth, it is asking the pilgrim to remember back to the beginning. You see, Israel was literally born in suffering. The psalm is deliberately taking Israel back to the experience of slavery in Egypt where Israel had felt the cruel stripes of the oppressor upon their back as the lashes of the slave master would draw blood again and again for generations. This was the beginning of God's people. Slavery. Suffering. This is what Hosea in chapter 11 verse 1 is referring to when he says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God had loved Israel, and God had brought Israel out of suffering, out of enslavement, out of pain, because he loved him. And as the pilgrim comes to the end of their journey, as they are approaching Jerusalem and going to worship the Lord, their God, they are called to sing and remember where they came from. That the story of God's people, the story that has been written upon us by God, begins with suffering. Most of you have experienced some degree of suffering. Perhaps some of you have been spared, but... If you continue on a journey towards God, you will suffer. Because suffering is at the very heart of the Christian faith. And so if you find yourself here today and you are afflicted, you are not strange or odd. This is not unexpected. In fact, it is the very opposite. It is common. It is what all Christians experience. For the Christian faith is all about Jesus. It is about the Christ. It is about the Messiah, the, the Deliverer, who has come to rescue us from the brokenness that is in this world. Jesus Christ has come to vanquish the evil of this world. And as the psalm says in verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. He has won. He has defeated that which is evil, that which is wicked. Jesus Christ is the one who disarms the evil one so that God's people are no longer bound. But as Tim Keller says in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, God is not accomplishing this in spite of suffering, agony, and loss. But through it, it is through the suffering of God that the suffering of humankind will eventually be overcome and undone. And so when the pilgrim reflects back on Israel's youth and how God had called his son out of Egypt, not only is it remembering backwards, but it is looking forward to the Jesus, to the son of God who was raised in Egypt and came out of Egypt 
God called him out of Egypt for the Lord Jesus Christ after he was born. Fled to Egypt because Herod the king was seeking to kill him. And there were many Hebrew babies who were killed as he pursued that goal. Out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea says. When the pilgrim reflects upon the plowers who plowed upon the back of the Israelites, it looks forward to the song of the servant who in Isaiah 56, talking about the Messiah, said, I gave my back to the smiters. The Messiah who was scourged and crucified, for salvation comes through suffering, as Isaiah 53, 5 reminds us, with his stripes we are healed. There are different reasons that we suffer. You know, sometimes uh, suffering is the result of our own poor decisions, our own sinfulness. But that was not the case with Israel and Egypt. God's people were not born into a suffering of their own creation. Later, they, they would sin and they would suffer. But in Egypt, there was not something that they had done. They just suffered. For those of you who have suffered or are suffering now, you know, this psalm asks us, not directly, but in between the lines, why? Why do we suffer? My second point, suffering brings us to God. Suffering is one of the main ways that we meet with God and experience his redemption. You see, when we suffer, we experience the reality of this world. I mean, going all the way back to Genesis 3, when we go all the way back to right here in the story, the brokenness, the fall, sin had entered into the world, everything was torn apart and broken, the chairs are no longer straight, the table has been disturbed, everything has fallen apart. Why? Because mankind rejected God and turned from his ways. It was at the fall that mankind told God, I know better. I will not submit to you as Lord, nor believe that you desire my utmost good. I know better. And it was at the fall that this world was made crooked and broken. And as we look into the world, we can see this. It doesn't take long to see the truth of that unrelenting, never-ending brokenness. If a co-worker who had gone through cancer treatments and was healthy, after much trial and suffering and time, finally she could say, no more cancer, no more. I think COVID hit. she was okay, made it through, only to go back to the doctor and find that the cancer had returned. As you rage against the brokenness of this world and the affliction that we experience, we know, we know that things are not as they are supposed to be. And it can seem like there is no end in sight. Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings, 
after a brief defeat of evil, speaking through the characters, it is always after a defeat and a respite that evil takes another shape and grows again. You see, whatever victory mankind has over the brokenness of this world through technological breakthroughs or political treaties or medical innovations, all we get is this brief reprieve. The suffering always comes back because sin dwells within. We cannot save ourselves. The world is broken. It is fallen. And so we suffer. Ultimately, Mankind is the origin of our own suffering. But God loves us. He loves us and he has done something about it. He sent his perfect son, not in spite of suffering, but to go through the suffering, to experience the suffering, to suffer and die on a cross in our place. Jesus Christ became sin and he suffered the consequence of sin, not because he had to, but because he loves us. God does not save us in spite of suffering. He saves us through suffering out of his love for us. And so we can have confidence that the Lord will cut the cords of the wicked. And he does it by offering his back to the smiters. And it is this sacrificial love that defeats the power of those who would afflict us. As it says in verse 2, they have not prevailed against me. Suffering is not because of God, it is because of sin, but it brings us to him. For suffering with Christ makes us hard and it makes us soft. Suffering brings us to God and makes us like him, for when we suffer with Christ, it makes us hard and it makes us soft. It makes us hard to the ways of this world because when we recognize that nothing in this world can bring us lasting relief from our suffering, when we recognize that Netflix cannot save us, that boy or that girl, that relationship cannot save us, the promotion will not save us, the double fudge brownie will not save us, that championship ring will not save us. Because evil will simply take another shape and grow again. When we recognize that the things of this world cannot save us, we become hard to them. It is in suffering that we see the light of the love of God in contrast to the darkness of this world. And it is in suffering that we become hardened to the fleeting temptations of this world. Suffering makes us hard and it brings us nearer to God. Suffering also makes us soft. See, in our suffering, we recognize our own helplessness. We're like infant children that are crying out for relief from the pain, and it is from this posture of humility and dependence that we are offered grace. The Lord does not rescue us because we are worthy. He did not come and rescue Israel out of Egypt because they were such a great nation. He rescued them because they were his son and he loved them. And he rescues us for we are his people. And he loves us. It is grace. And when we realize that there is nothing within us that deserves to be saved, we begin to look at others with compassion and gentleness. You see, suffering makes us soft, that we can extend mercy and forgiveness. 
the mercy and forgiveness that we have experienced, we can extend it to others in need. God instructs his people to sing about suffering. Because in God's plan of salvation, it is through suffering that we become more like him. It is through suffering that we are brought closer to him. And so we can have confidence. But then the song takes a turn. And many times people have a difficult time. Why would the Bible have words like verses 5 through 8? It brings me to my final point. That God is love and it is out of love that we see his severe justice. See, the back half of this song does not feel or sound very Christian. Does not sound gracious nor loving. It says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backwards. May all who are not with us be ended, be put to shame. Let them be like grass and wither. Right. Verse 6. May their harvest fail. We want them to starve. Let them experience curse and not blessing. Verse 8. The Lord's blessing be not upon you. Whatever happened to turn the other cheek? Whatever happened to love your enemies? Is this even Christian? What? What is going on here? Why would God instruct his people to sing these words? Well, it is Christian. And I'll tell you why. Because Christians are called to be like Christ. We are called to be like Christ and we are called to offer mercy and grace as God has offered us mercy and grace. We are called to be like Christ and to love those, even those who are unlovable. We are called to be like Christ and to hate evil and to hate godlessness. See, when the psalmist says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame, Zion is not uh, simply this capital city. Zion is this idea. It is this term that refers to the city of God. The mount of God where the people would come and meet with God. It is the abode of God. Zion is the place where God's people come to God. And the psalmist is not seeking vengeance against this individual person. The psalmist is not issuing this vindictive cry of someone who has been wronged. No, personal vengeance is always wrong. Personal vengeance is always wrong. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. This song is the collective declaration of the people of God that God one day is going to remove and bring to ruin all that opposes his kingdom and his gospel. It is right for us to call for the end of wickedness, the ruin of the plans of the evil one. It is right for us to curse, for God has brought curse upon all that is wrong and broken and evil in this world.
And it is because we know that God will both save us from evil and bring justice and judgment upon it that we can have hope. The Lord is not simply protecting his people from defeat so that the one afflicting does not prevail. No, the Lord is actually undoing evil. He is bringing utter destruction upon that which is wicked. It will fail and it will be no more. And we should rejoice in this. Redemption does not only mean restoration of what is good. It means the removal of all that is bad. And if you have suffered and felt affliction, you may hope and rejoice that although this suffering may be but for a moment, God has defeated it. And it will come to ruin. In that book on suffering by Tim Keller, he shares stories of people who have suffered. And I'm, I'm going to share parts of one of those stories. This is the story of Georgiana. She writes this. She says, my daughters and I love fiction, especially stories that have happy endings. Our life with their father and my husband, Ted, had been so happy and blissful, so much so that if God said to me, I am going to allow a painful crisis in your family, all of you will suffer, I would calmly reply, okay, Father, let your will be done. We could handle anything together. On May 13, 2011, our youngest daughter, Jane, had an accident. She tipped backward in her seat and fell, hitting her head on the hardwood floor. I assessed her immediately. As a trained infant and pediatric nurse practitioner, she showed no signs of injury. And my sister, also a nurse practitioner, agreed that she appeared healthy. We took Jane to her scheduled pediatrician's visit three days later, and I told the doctor what had happened, and he thought it would be prudent to obtain a skull x-ray. We took Jane to the children's hospital where the x-ray revealed a skull fracture. A CT scan confirmed that there were no other complications. Obviously, I felt terrible and had many questions, but we were comforted and assured by the medical staff. We praise God all the way home for protecting Jane from more severe injuries. A week later, I was home alone with Ann, Page, and Jane. Suddenly, there were police detectives and child protective services workers at our house. They had come to investigate a report of severe child abuse. Their questions were shocking, accusatory, and confusing. Even more appalling, my daughters witnessed it all. The report of severe child abuse came from a new doctor at the hospital who only reviewed the x-ray and made the report to CPS based on nothing more. Because Jane was under 12 months old, the report was automatically classified as a criminal case. All three of our daughters were removed from our custody. There was no evidence of abuse, past or present, in any of our children. There were no risk factors for abuse in our family. There were no previous injuries in any of our children. Every medical professional who actually examined Jane and spoke with our family ruled out the possibility of abuse. In spite of the truth, our family was torn apart and was not reunited until nine months later. 
Ted and I were not allowed to live in the same house as our girls, so we were forced to move out and were allowed only supervised visitation. I will never forget the first night away from our daughters. I was raging, crying out to God, screaming in agony. Then something powerful happened. A calmness and warmth spread through me. I was suddenly aware that God was right there holding me, raging with me at the injustice, weeping with us. His children in the moment, I had never felt more protected in all my life. I certainly did not remain 100% trusting or peaceful over the following nine months. Every second felt like evil persecution. Our children were suffering. I was being falsely accused of severely abusing Jane. I was also being personally and professionally attacked on many levels. I spent over a decade working as a nurse with high-risk families. I was specifically trained to prevent child abuse and neglect. Finally, we made it to juvenile court. Although it was technically a criminal investigation as well, the police had performed many investigative procedures, and since they never uncovered any evidence against us, we were never charged criminally. And the judge threw out the charge, and we did not even have to make a defense. I whispered, thank you, over and over. Our attorney said to us, this isn't my victory or your victory. This is God's victory. Thank him, not me. But when the battle was over, there were battle wounds that needed tending. Initially, we were so relieved and overjoyed by freedom that we did not anticipate the emotional task ahead. Despite the reunification of our family, our daughters continued to suffer the effects of our crisis. Ted and I also faced some symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but even so, the predominant mood in our home was relief. We felt peace and joy with fresh intensity. I felt a renewed sense of awe and gratitude for the gift of my children. It was amazing how the lingering hurt coexisted with the delight. How our grieving was simultaneous with our healing. The most powerful facilitation of our recovery has been forgiveness. I think injustice is very difficult to forgive. Personally, it would have been impossible to forgive without God's intervention. After our, our exoneration, my family attempted repeatedly to contact the children's hospital that ignited the whole ordeal. The chief of staff finally agreed to a meeting with the physician who reported us. Our intention was to have a collegial discussion about the events in an effort to prevent similar harm to other families. I recounted every appalling detail of our family's experience to the chief of staff and the head of child abuse pediatrics, the one who had reported us. As I spoke, I felt confident and calm, never angry or bitter. And when I finished, the chief of staff apologized, saying mistakes were made. And I am very sorry for what your family had to go through. Then the physician who made the misdiagnosis of child abuse echoed the same apology. When we were leaving the office, I hugged the doctor who had reported us. This life, this life was full of suffering and affliction. But we are not alone. For we have a God who has entered into the suffering with us. And if you are not sure if God is with us, all you need to do is look to the cross. For he suffered. 
and he died, and he has experienced every bit of pain that we experience because he loves us, and he desires to bring an end to the suffering. And it will end. It is not forever. And in making us more like our Savior and our God, it will harden us to the things that don't really matter. And it will soften us to the things that do. And we can, along with God, rage against the brokenness of this world. The evil that we find in sin. Knowing that one day, every, every sad thing is going to come untrue. And so we remember, and we hope, and we sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son that, that the affliction will not prevail, that the evil one will not win, that the suffering will come to an end, for the ways of the wicked will come to ruin, there will be no fruit. And thank you that you are with us in this time. Although you have not removed the suffering from us yet, we know that you care, for you have entered into it with us. And you are saving us. You are saving us through it. You are redeeming and restoring this world. And so we thank you and we ask that as we suffer, that we would draw near to you and lean on you and trust in you.